Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Huffington Post's So That Happened is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. Get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com slash happened. That's H-A-P-P-E-N-E-D. This podcast contains explicit language. It's my new beat. So that happened. The Republican Party held its first two debates Thursday night. They were pretty wild and wonderful. We'll review the hits and the horrors with the HuffPost A-team. And then we'll talk about student debt. But here's what happened first. Spoiler alert, it was the debate stuff. And the first Republican presidential debate of the 2016 election cycle is complete. And I think it's safe to say that it was uh, horrifying and wonderful. Uh, joining me now are Lauren Weber. Lauren, thanks for having me. And Allie Watkins. Good evening. Who both watched this wild, wonderful show? Sadly, uh, <laughs> with us tonight. Um, so I, I was struck. Uh, it seemed like Fox really had their knives out for Trump. Right? He's a hundred percent the head head honcho in the polls right now. Uh, the Republican establishment really doesn't want him to. Uh, to get the nomination. He doesn't pull well head-to-head against Hillary Clinton. Uh, but I felt like over the course of the debate, he didn't really, he, he didn't really fall apart. Uh, to me, that, that felt like, I felt like he, he won to that extent. The people who seemed really bad, who had poor performances, uh, jumped out to me as Jeb Bush and Ben Carson. Uh, Lauren, what did you think? I mean, I would agree with that. I think at the end of the day, you win a debate by getting the headlines, and Trump's going to suck up all of those tomorrow. And I think his ability to kind of withstand that massive onslaught of every single moderator question being targeted at him, you know, spoke a lot to to his ability to kind of take it and run with it. And, you know, his campaign said, you know, on Twitter, they're like, this is just Trump being Trump. And he managed to hold up under the bright lights on the stage. So... The, the the best question was you know you you gave a lot of money to Hillary Clinton what did you expect to get back <laughs> and, and, and what, what was the response Allie she came to my wedding <laughs> I love that response because like if he if he actually says like she helped me like get this real estate development deal on like the the Brooklyn waterfront like that's actually Game over. explicit corruption people are going to go to jail for that right <laughs> would have been a shame that would have been really great if I would have been a like, lot of news I, yeah Donald Trump in jail that's all you kind I of wonder, think about it you, you can kind of see like Megyn Kelly like rubbing her hands and like, <laughs> maybe I'm making out smart him on this one I think I might have him and and he's like ah, I just don't feel like I want to say I, I bet Trump doesn't know that he could go to jail for that a hundred percent doesn't he was just no. thinking, Definitely not. I just feel like the wedding thing is a safe answer. And it was a safe answer, and it, it I thought it, I Humanizing. Thought it, it hit really well. Uh, sort of. Yeah, I think everybody talked about leading up to this. I mean, a lot of the Politico talk was, which Trump is going to show up? And I think he should, like, there's only one Trump. There's the Donald Trump brand, and, and he, was he went with it, and it worked for him. You know, every answer, he stuck with that. And I think you're totally right. He stole the headlines and stole the stage, and he's going to get the most attention tomorrow. So I, I felt like, policy-wise... There, there was really only one flare-up uh, over the course of the, this debate, um, maybe two. But the, the big one, I thought, 
uh, was between Chris Christie and and Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. And it was over civil liberties and uh, surveillance policy in the United States and wh- whether we need to spy on people in the United States uh, who are, are not suspected of any crimes in order to prosecute the war on terror. Um, Ali, what what did you make of of that conflict? I was particularly struck by Rand Paul's uh, performance in that in that zone, but I'm not sure Republicans in general will will will, will have the same opinion that I <laughs> I had of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of I kind of saw it as twofold. I mean, first of all, you have this debate over privacy and you know surveillance, what we should collect, what we shouldn't collect with a warrant. That's still going on. But honestly, I think you know what Chris Christie said to Ron Paul over this whole Rand Paul, sorry, wrong Paul, um, over this whole understandable mistakes <laughs> based on his performance. <laughs> anyway, um, you know Chris Christie's position against Rand Paul is honestly, I think you could have taken any Republican, or to be totally frank, quite a few Democrats who were in favor of reigning in the NSA against Rand Paul. I mean, so many people just saw his stunt a couple months ago as a total political issue that, you know, he was trying to do this big thing on the floor, make the NSA expire for, you know, what was it, like under 24 hours. So a lot of people saw that as a political stunt. So I saw this whole flare up between him and Christie kind of twofold. Like, obviously, there's still this issue. Rand Paul obviously still thinks you need a warrant, you need NSA reform. Um, But on the other side of the coin, you know, I think a lot of people are still kind of salty that he just used this as an opportunity to be super politicized. I think people see Rand Paul as like kind of a grandstander uh, in a lot of issues. And I think it kind of gave Christie an opportunity to uh, exploit that. I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's strange watching it as, uh, as you know, fr- from like a liberal perspective. Cause if you look at these, th- this, this debate, you know, I, I think a lot of liberals would look at the things that Donald Trump says about <laughs> race and immigrants and say, that man is horrifying. Uh, yes. Uh, but then he says things like, you know, these trade deals are bad and I would renegotiate these trade trade deals. And they're, they're not actually that far from what someone like Bernie Sanders is saying about trade and what, what a lot of the Democratic Party is saying. He's just saying, I would also ignore all previously existing international commitments. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wipe wipe away the existing policy status quo, uh, which, you know, I think if, if you're an honest uh, economic progressive uh, who is a trade critic, you would say well, that would be more effective than the, the existing status quo. It would just be. Uh, potentially problematic in a lot of other areas. Did, did you think, Lauren, that Trump's lack of policy specificity? He was he was specifically asked about uh, about about stuff regarding Mexico. You know, what what is the evidence that he has that Mexico the Mexican government is specifically sending criminals and rapists to the United States? And he, he really didn't have anything. Do you think that hurts him at all? No, I mean the people that already support him are pretty clear that he hasn't backed it up with any sort of policy. I mean, I think being asked point blank is a little bit different, but he was able to kind of bluster his way through it and get a smattering of a laws along the way. I mean, the guy kind of makes his money and his candidacy off of being a straight talker. And being a straight talker doesn't necessarily mean that you have the points to back up what you're saying. Uh, So I think he was able to kind of make it happen tonight. To be clear, you can be totally honest. About having nothing. And be be wrong. (laughs) It's not a lie if you actually don't know the truth. Exactly. And he did a fantastic job of I mean, he said what he knew his audience wanted to hear. Not that he said it for that purpose, because honestly, I don't think Trump has it in him to say what he thinks people want to hear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he kind of latches onto that and goes with it and people eat it up. The only blip of the night was when he stopped and said, why am I here? To which I was like, is he really trolling all of us? Is this his existential moment where he realizes it? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it was amazing. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Lauren Weber and Allie Watkins, two HuffPost pros. You can catch them on this podcast or on the Huffington Post. What are your, what are your Twitter handles, guys? 
Mine is at Allie Watkins, A-L-I-W-A-T-K-I-N-S. Mine's at Lauren Weber HP. All right. We'll be right back with some more debate stuff. Huffington Post's So That Happened is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. That's right. Audible has more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. You can download the books and access them on a bunch of different devices on iPhones, Android, Kindle, iPod, or pretty much any other MP3 player. Uh, And in particular, So That Happened... Basically, me, Zach Carter, thinks that you should take a look at The Restoration of Rome, Barbarian Popes, and Imperial Pretenders by Peter Heather, who is a uh, a historian at King's College in London focusing on medieval history. It's narrated very well by a guy named Alan Robertson. Uh, It's not really about, you know, American politics in the contemporary sense, but since American politicians are constantly looking back towards the legacy of the Roman Empire, it's a very interesting look at how other rulers have looked back and tried to invoke the legacy of Rome in their own sort of political affairs. It's a really fun book, uh, and I recommend you check it out. If you want to get a listen to that book, or a different book, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com happened. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash happened, H-A-P-P-E-N-E-D. Joining us now, we have Marina Fang, who's a politics editor at The Huffington Post, and Nick Bauman, who is uh, like pretty much my boss, right? Like you're you're an editor here. I file stories to you. Sometimes I'm your boss. <laughs> Do you have to listen to me if, if if that's the case? I think if I if I really hate an edit, I can like bring it up with Ryan Grimm. But so far that hasn't happened, so it's been good. Uh, I I thought interesting things tonight uh, with with the, the senatorial class. Um, uh, Marco Rubio, I, I thought he started off great and then sort of faded to the pack. And I thought there was really no presence from uh, from from Ted Cruz at all. I just did not think he made an impact. What, what Nick? What did you think of that? Uh, I thought Rubio was great. Uh, I think he really stood out, especially relative to the two other sort of astou- real establishment contenders, uh, Bush and and Walker. Walker really didn't get to talk that much until the very end of the debate. Uh, and and Bush stumbled a lot and and really yeah. didn't have a good answer prepared for the Iraq question, which is just stunning because he's gotten that question so many times and he's gotten in trouble for it before. Yeah, and he's going to get it again until the election. Yeah, he's he's, he's going like to keep Iraq getting it fixed. until he gets it right. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what what is the right answer? What what is the right answer if if you're a Republican who's got to appeal to hawkish donors? Uh, who who do not feel bad about the Iraq war at all? What what is your answer to the Iraq war question? Which uh, you know the American public thinks you know the Iraq invasion was a disaster. I think Jeb he's uniquely vulnerable on this subject, but he might be worrying a little too much about it. I think uh, it, it's hard for me to imagine a voter who's going to base their decision uh, in the general election on what. Jeb Bush thinks about the Iraq war. If Hillary Clinton's the nominee, she voted for the Iraq war. <laughs> right. So it, it doesn't seem to – he seems to think it's more of a vulnerability than it actually is, and he, he's backpedaled a lot, and now his position seems to be pretty incoherent. So, Marina, what, what, what did you think? What, what jumped out at you? It was weird to me – I mean, this is probably because there were so many candidates, but there were moments where I just forgot some of them existed. Like, Ted Cruz 
really didn't have a lot of questions directed to him. And then towards the end, he kind of made a little bit of an impact. And I remember being like, oh, wait, he he's actually there. And 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 Walker had a lot of pretty short answers. And again, I forgot that he existed for a while. So that was that was really striking to me, just the speed and the rapid fireness of everything. So I didn't think Walker made a particularly, you know, extraordinary impression tonight. Right. But but I did think he was more charismatic than than I've seen him on on other you know other TV appearances on Sunday shows on interviews on cable news. He did seem to have a little bit more personality yeah. than I expected. Um, but he, he didn't make a huge impact to me. Um, he he seemed, if anything though, he seemed to benefit from Jeb Bush being so flat. Because he he and Jeb Bush are the two kind of establishment type candidates that that people are, are looking to right now. But I felt like neither of them, uh, neither of them, ma- made an impact that was deep enough to to affect Trump's dominance in, in the race so far. Trump didn't really fall apart. Uh, so I was looking then at at, at, the, at the sort of the further down the line candidates, the the evangelical uh, type candidates like Ted Cruz, who's been trying to move that vote, uh, Mike Huckabee as well. Right. And I was really sh- I was really surprised with Ted Cruz, and I'm wondering if he's if he's taking a hit here. Because he's he's supposed to be the outrageous flamboyant guy, and here you here you've got Donald Trump on stage. Uh, what, what what did you think of that, Nick? I like that theory a lot. Uh, I, you you can't out Trump Trump. You can't Trump <laughs> Trump. I guess. Uh, and and so it, it doesn't really make sense to try. But uh, you're right. That's that's Cruz's mode of operation, and I think uh, he he ran into some trouble uh, getting attention. Which is his strong suit normally, uh, Marina. Policy wise, were, were were there any any questions that you felt were were unusual or unexpected t- tonight? Oh God! If the whole debate feels like it was years ago, and then the like baby debate, the kids table debate before <laughs> that feels like it was several lifetimes ago. So I didn't. Um, I thought I thought all of the questions were like pretty predictable. It was like yeah. Planned Parenthood, and then a whole bunch of questions hitting Trump, right? right? And immigration and anything. Were there were there any responses related. where uh, were, were they were did, did any candidate say something t- tonight that that surprised you that, that you just did not expect to hear from them? I mean, not the not the risk not the response itself, but like when Kasich was talking about gay marriage and people in the audience were actually applauding. I was thinking back to in 2008 when there was a question about, I think it was a gay soldier and people booed that question. And that was astonishing to me that that happened. That might've been 2012. I don't remember. Yeah, that that was 20, it was 20, it was a 2012 debate. You're right. You're right. It was a 2012 debate. And there was, there was a gay soldier who like had a video question that came in Yeah, and, and the crowd booed this guy for being a gay member of the American military. And then tonight you had John Kasich getting up there and saying, yeah, if my daughter was gay, I mean, look, I'm opposed to to gay marriage, but I'd go to her wedding and I'd love her and unconditional love is awesome. And then people cheered. That did seem to be a difference. Yeah. Uh, But, but I'm, I, I wonder if that will, if, if that's the thing that, that reaches beyond the GOP base, because you saw other candidates in both the first debate and, and this debate tonight taking a very hard line right. on social, social, social issues. Uh, Nick, do you, do you think that that type of sort of not hatred on, on an issue is going to hurt him uh, farther down the line in the primary? No, I, I think he was, he was careful to sort of toe the party line and, and, and also give a, what his version of a compassionate answer. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think what what people who oppose gay marriage most want to feel is they want to feel that that 
be, they're not they're not bigots because of that that they are uh, good people and just happen to disagree and and I think he he spoke to people who who feel that way the the social issue question that really uh, surprised me or the answer that really surprised me was Marco Rubio on rape and incest exceptions yeah. for abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He basically denied that he had ever supported uh, those exceptions, which I don't think is quite true. Uh, I think the record's a little yeah. murkier uh, on that. Um, and uh, I think sort of going that far to the right on that issue, uh, if he does become the nominee, which I I still believe he has a decent chance, um, you're, you're could, big on Rubio tonight. You you liked him. You yeah, yeah. Strong performance. Yeah, well, I think he was the only candidate who uh, really articulated uh, his argument for why he would be a great Republican candidate. He and, and it was in his first answer. He said, you know, I'm the candidate of the future. And that that's going to be a compelling campaign theme against Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, she's yeah. she's the wife of a former president. It's a compelling campaign theme against Jeb Bush. It's a compelling campaign theme uh, against a lot of these guys. And and I think uh, it also makes a difference that, you know, Rubio's young. He's Latino. Um, and I think he's a he's a compelling speaker. I think he, he lo- you know, he looks and sounds like the future of the Republican Party. And I think uh, he, he did really yeah. well. And he was willing to go a little deeper into some of those policy questions and actually articulate his policy views rather than just say, like, I'm going to bring jobs to people or, you know, I'm going to build the Keystone Pipeline. And that (laughs) largely was the response of a lot of other candidates just to give these very broad statements without any specific policy. I mean, it was even worse with Donald Trump where he would right. say he would just be like policy free. But uh, what what um, uh, we should we should wrap this up. Uh, each of you, what what was the worst response you thought from from each candidate uh, tonight? Uh, Marina, I'll give you time to think. Nick. The worst response. Uh, I think probably the standout moment for me was when Trump said that he he paid Hillary Clinton to go to his wedding, basically. Oh, he gave her yeah. a bunch of, you know, he, he donated to her, and what he got out of it was that she came to his wedding. What he should have said and what he could have said and what I would fit with what he's previously said is that he was paying for access. You know, he was paying to be able to be have the option of being able to call her up and if he had a problem with his business or whatever. Um, I don't think he should have let himself be pressed by the moderators into giving that answer. Uh, I, I think he, it made him look silly. He, he didn't say uh, any specific policy thing because if he had said, well, I did get this development project on X, you know, waterfront or whatever, that would be explicit quid pro quo corruption and there could be prosecutions for that. So he avoided something public policy wise, I, I thought. But I think you're right. If he if he had been vaguer and just said, look, I got I, I was able to get Hillary Clinton on the phone whenever I wanted. That would have been honest. Yeah. Uh, but he did get to I don't know the bombast of saying she came to my wedding. I mean, that also helps him explain away all these photos of him partying with Hillary Clinton. That's true. I, and I believe the quote was she had no choice. <laughs> I think that's what he said. It's kind of creepy. Like, though. <laughs> yeah. Marina, what do you think? I was thinking back to that right off the bat, that question from Megyn Kelly about his comments about women. That just, I mean, I think it was probably because it was one of the first questions. But also, I mean, we talk about the GOP having this gender gap. Here's why they have this gender gap. They have people like Donald Trump not being able to answer a pretty simple question about a statement that is like widely known about 
how he feels about women. So that was really stuff. Do you think that hurts him in a, in a Republican primary debate, though? I mean, a party that, that skews overwhelmingly older white male. That's true. I don't know. We'll see, right? Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> the polls will come out. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, your Twitter handles before you go. I'm at Nick Bauman. Two ends at the end. I'm at the fanger. The fanger. Awesome. Thanks, guys. So we now have Jessica Schulberg, who is, uh, what is your job title, Jessica? I'm a reporter. You're a frequent guest of the show. Uh, Jessica, your specialty is foreign policy, national security, things that are scary that involve violence, typically overseas. Um, I, would... I also have exclusive coverage over the Dogs of Huffington Post. You can you can see the latest on my Twitter. Yeah. little secret for listeners here is that there is a dog in our studio right now, and his name is Gus. And he looks like a fox. Little red fox. He's a sweetheart. You can check that out on all of our Instagram feeds. Um, I was astounded, Jessica, by how hawkish both um, the, the kids' table debate early on was and also the uh, the, the debate tonight. I, I thought even... You were. Even, yeah, a little bit. Um, Care to drain Zach? <laughs> so you, so you expected you expected to hear Bob. I was surprised because I have, I have a running list going, and I would say not even half of the 16 candidates that we heard from tonight explicitly said that they would tear up the Iran agreement on day one in office. It was about half that said that. And I was honestly expecting them to be stepping all over each other's toes to see who could rip it up faster and who could rip it up into the most pieces. And you definitely saw people <laughs> talk about it, but some people kind of shied away from it. I mean, Carly Fiorina. Is that how you say her name? Fiorina. Yeah, 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 yeah. Carly. You know, Hillary's just Hillary. I don't know why we need to go with Carly's last Fiorina's name. Fiorina's kind it's of a so cool name. Damn hard to say. About. Fiorina sounds, I mean, it's, it sounds Italian. It sounds like it should be a scooter. Like. So, so Carly, she said that on her first day in office, she would call up um, the Ayatollah of Iran and tell him that he needs to make all of his military sites open to anytime, anywhere inspections, mm-hmm. which would just never happen. I mean, as the White House has put it, anytime, anywhere inspections is always kind of a farce because that would ostensibly allow the IEA to go to the Supreme Leader's, you know, house at two in the morning and say, right. we think you have a bomb, like, let us in. So her saying that is essentially a her saying. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. That she set such a standard that will cause the deal to derail. But I still think that's a pretty uh, notable difference from people like Perry, who literally said, my first move in office will be, will be to rip this thing into shreds. 
Right, and and uh, other previous threats from candidates that like Harry I'll, Cruz, I'll, Walker, I'll... Graham, and, Bush. And, and, well, and you've also seen people openly advocate for military strikes in Congress mm. uh, on the Republican My side. My favorite, Tom Cotton. Yeah. Tom Cotton, right? Who, who then then got really upset when uh, President Obama said that people were. Or, 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 or you know, strike in Iran, yeah. right? People who oppose the deal want a military strike. But um, that that aside, Donald Trump, who I I don't think is known for his uh, policy acumen here, he he kind of tried to have it both ways, right? He said at one point, "I opposed the Iraq invasion in mm-hmm. July of 2004." Which, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. Good job, like, everyone opposed the Iraq war by 2004. <laughs> Things weren't going so good. <laughs> Right, uh, two thousand. It was like March two thousand three. That was the time. That was sort of the deadline because to really innovative. come out and be a bold, you know, innovative thinker. <laughs> right, um, but that so so he that that seemed like sort of a dovish thing to say. Like, hey, I oppose mm-hmm. the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. I'm not in favor of all these wars. And then, uh, I would say that's not a dovish thing to say so much as I mean you won't really see that many Republicans defending their decision to go to the war to go to war in Iraq unless they have to. I mean Jeb Bush can't shit talk the war in Iraq because mm-hmm. he can't shit talk his brother. So I think just because the war was such a catastrophe that at this point sort of distancing yourself from it isn't really a dovish policy. It's just a I don't want to be associated with a policy that clearly fucked up because you'll see the same people who are saying the Iraq war was a mistake now saying you know we should reinvade Syria and Iraq. So I think. It's sort of a question of timing. Do you think it is odd that at the center of a presidential election in 2016, you know, it's not 2016 yet, but mm-hmm. that's that's you know that, that's what's coming. Is it almost there? <laughs> that, that that one of the core, uh, what one of the absolute core policy debates that is happening, and I think I think this was relatively substantive compared to other things that were debated tonight: economic policy, Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. these things that came up. I think those were kind of kind of silly questions. But they, there were, I, I, I felt like this, this Iran agreement deal, there, there was a lot of, I mean, this is a, this is a real policy which, with, with real consequences, and they, they kept getting asked on it. Is it strange to you to hear the, the neoconservative line, like, we, sh- we should be invading these countries so that, you know, if, if we just go around beating our chests the hardest, mm-hmm. people, people will respect us, we will win. Mm-hmm. Um, after the Iraq debacle led by Republicans, are you surprised to see that being so central to the, the GOP debate? Uh, I'm not really. I think, for one, Iran has a very special place in the in the hearts of Republicans and, you know, general war hawks. I think that just given our history and since the revolution in 1979, it's been pretty easy to paint Iran as this boogeyman, which I guess you could say the same about Saddam Hussein. But I just think there's such a bipartisan consensus within politics. You know, even on the Hill, you see Menendez is one of the large, uh, most outspoken critics of Iran and saying some pretty hawkish approaching pro-war things. Um, I just think that they're able to put enough distance in their heads between the Iraq war and the current conflict in Iran that they don't really see it as a parallel I mean, one is saying, you know, our intelligence agency told us that we had weapons of mass destruction and there was absolutely no proof of it. Now, at least we're working with like somewhat of a tangible nuclear program. There's still a lot of question as to whether Iran wants to weaponize that nuclear program. But you can say, you know, they have this program that can ostensibly use to create weapons of mass destruction. You know, it kind of gives them a little bit more to build on. So who do you think did the worst? Ooh, well, does Donald Trump even count? I think he did the best. I, th- I he's he's my pick. I mean, he did the best in terms of like what people want from him, but I guess like in terms of uh, debating politics, he flubbed every policy question. Let's be clear. Are we talking about the kitty debate included at five o'clock? Sure, or is it all just... of it. Yeah. Oh gosh, um, who did the worst? There are so many. You can do the big. You can keep it to the big kids debate. 
I, it's just Ben Carson was pretty bad. Ben uh, Carson was pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> Did you see, uh, uh, what's his name? Herman Cain was tweeting. He's like, wait for it, wait for it. And then Ben Carson would say something totally inconsequential, and he'd be like, nailed it. <laughs> oh. I was just really, really excited. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, he's he's the only person of color in, uh, well, I get Marco Rubio. And I guess, uh, I guess you could sort of say Ted Cruz. Everyone right? was looking yeah. pretty colorful tonight. I don't know what kind of orange filter yeah. bullshit they had going well, on, but there's some glow. He's the only black guy in either party who's running for election, mm-hmm. for, for the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that that is a thing that is important. Uh, it's kind of fucked up that our presidential politics do not allow for, like, better black candidates to be part of the uh, the spectrum there. That's That seems pretty, pretty weird. I mean, he... He seems like a pretty nice guy who's probably really good. At, like, he, he, he really shined when he talked about cutting people's brains open. He's really open. great about the brain cutting. I'm <laughs> like, like you, you should stick to that. It seems like you know what you're talking about as opposed to when you talk about anything else. Like, this, right. is, this is a good beat for you. He, he would be – he seems like he's a great brain surgeon. Um, but Ben Carson talking about Iran kind of felt like when I somehow ended up writing about gay marriage tonight, it's something I'm very interested in. I feel very passionately about it. But I was writing it, and I was like, I don't even know – how to write about this. Like, do I say homosexual? Do I say gay? No. Do I say LGBT? <laughs> I think there's a homosexual in there. I'm really, oh, well, I apologize. We have an editor for that. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Tell the people where they can find your tweets. Jessica Schulb, S-C-H-U-L-B. All right, awesome. The uh, the kids' table debate, technically the first Republican presidential debate of the 2016 cycle, although it was for the seven weakest candidates in the Republican field uh, by, by polling numbers. Um, I'm joined now by Paige Lavender, who's – what was your job title, Paige? Superstar <laughs> editor? That's a good job title. Uh, technically, my job title is senior politics editor. Senior politics editor, big-time big superstar. And uh, uh, friends of the show will know Dan Morans. Uh, Daniel, what, what's your job title? It's Marans. Um, oh. I'm, I'm just reporter and – I'm covering politics and also business, economic policy as well. Yeah, not yeah. just a reporter. That's a very important job. Yeah, you're a big dork, though, basically. So <laughs> uh, this uh, th- th- this debate, I thought was I-, I was really wowed by a couple of things. First of all, how hawkish everybody on stage seemed to be. The closest I think anybody got to saying, "Hey, maybe things are complicated," was Carly Fiorina at one point saying, "Yeah, our allies are not perfect." Um, but even then, she was saying, "You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call, uh, I'm gonna call the, the supreme leader of Iran, yeah, good friend Bibi, yeah. her first day in she office." She says that uh, every day. I like. She said it in the Voters First Forum. She said it in pretty much every appearance that she's made in the last month. I think that she's gonna call him up on her first day in office, and I'm like, "How long are you guys gonna talk? Like all day long? This is gonna be all day phone call." Like, I don't know. What's sort of interesting about that is that Bibi is actually the fusion of the perfect Republican candidate because he's both such a foreign policy hawk. He's got that great English language rhetoric, and he also has a big business background. He he got an MBA in the states here, and that's and he was working at Boston Consulting Group, and that's how he knows Mitt Romney. So so, th- but I, I'm I'm just kind of stunned that a couple of years ago you could hear sort of Tea Party Republicans railing against 
uh, Obama's illegal war in Libya. You, you could hear people saying, I mean, it was Republicans who essentially helped blow up uh, Obama's uh, really, I, I think, executive decision to intervene militarily in Syria. Republicans said, no, we actually don't want to do that a, a couple of falls ago. Um, we're, we're now having a bombing campaign in Syria anyway. Uh, and everybody on stage seemed to be pretty psyched about that. I was, I've, I've been really stunned at the degree to which the Republican presidential slate has just gone straight neocon this time around. I thought there would be at least a few voices at that kids' table debate saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we don't want to go to war. Maybe your kids shouldn't be shot at. I think to the extent that it was voiced, there was voiced by the moderator who essentially said, now keeping in mind that many conservative voters are and many Americans are wary about the idea of getting entangled in another country. And that was that was built into the question. So maybe it is still a force in the rank and file uh, community, but not so much in the Republican elite anymore. Um, I also saw George Pataki start to go there where he said, I don't think we need a prolonged occupation in Iraq. But then he doubled <laughs> back and sort of said, my kids have served in the military and that's why I'm OK saying that we should send them back there again. So sort of, I was yeah, hoping that and, and that and, and that was important in context, right? Because Lindsey Graham was saying, I, I, will, I will send people there forever. Whatever it takes to kill ISIS, we will have people on the ground there um, um, forever. But, but what about Lindsey Graham Page? I was surprised at how lifeless he looked he, tonight. He looked super timid and super like he didn't want to be there. And uh, that's really different than the rhetoric he's had lately, which is, you know, he's trying to be really tough and he's trying to stand out in a crowd. And, you know, he's actually come out with some pretty, you know, I don't know if I would call them explosive, but he's not afraid to go after people like Trump and whatever. Um, but yeah, this debate, he just seemed like somebody sucked the life out of him before the whole thing started. And uh, he, he I, it must have been nerves. I mean, you could just tell that it was his nerves getting to him and, and he did not come across well. Yeah, I mean, he's I think if it was actually I mean, I think policy wise, there are a lot of things I would critique about Lindsey Graham. But he, he is a charming guy. He did not seem that way tonight. Um, the moderators. Dan, Daniel, you, I, I love calling you Dan Morans, even though your actual name is <laughs> Daniel Marans. Um, I, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the way questions were phrased. I thought the moderators had the biggest presence in the debate of, of all these people. Maybe this is because they were, this was the B-teamers. But I felt like every question was, here is my insanely detailed policy prescription. How hard are you going to go for it? And, and, and as a result, people just had, people could just give some boring campaign speech because there was no actual question. I thought it was the, a case of the tail wagging the dog and really the fact that it was a Fox News moderated debate tells you everything that you need to know. This is Fox News represents, kind of dictates a lot of the message and a lot of the talking points of the party from the hardest core grassroots and also probably from the donor class. And you heard that in these incredibly lengthy uh, questions. And, and for example, the, the, the most explosive question that people are going to be talking about is when Martha McCallum asked George Pataki whether he would commit to surveilling mosques in the fight against terrorism. And I thought it what was so interesting about that question was that it was so layered in the orthodoxy it was asking Pataki to subscribe to, because on the one hand, it said, show us how, how serious you are about fighting terrorism. Are you willing to surveil mosques? Oh, but wait, wait a second. Don't forget that the voters that, that you need to attract also care about religious liberty. So be conscious of that, too. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there is this thing called the First Amendment, and it does apply to Muslims. But will you just say whatever? Because, you know, they're pretty Muslim. Uh, well, and back to your point, too, about the campaign talking points. I mean, 
all of this that they said today was a repeat. I mean, I watched the Voters First Forum on Monday, and a lot of it was word for word things that they had said um, on Monday, in, like even down to like jokes that they were telling were just total repeat statements. Ugh. It was they, nothing felt off the cuff. It was all rehearsed, all campaign statements, all written by their press people or whatever. So yeah, it just it all felt pretty generic. So my hypothesis here is that there's one person from this kids table debate who's going to get va- vaunted up into the, like the top tier of candidates who are not just totally screwed for donor funding now. Um, who Paige, who, who did you think that was? It's Carly Fiorina, for sure. Dan? I would tend to agree, though I did think that Santorum struck some interesting notes with his focus on manufacturing and his attempt to play to the white working class. I don't think there's another Republican candidate putting out putting that policy angle out there. He did also, however, compare same-sex yeah. marriage to the Dred Scott decision, which seems like that is. I mean, there there are there are gay Republican donors. They exist. <laughs> <laughs> They're Actually, not going to be psyched about that. Just put a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> Our reporter Julia Craven wrote a post called "Here's Why You Know You Can't Compare These Two Cases," and the top of her piece is "Pay attention, sir." Like she's schooling <laughs> him on why that was not a good thing to say. So it's very funny. You should go read that if you're listening into uh, this. Okay. Well, before we we break, uh, Paige, what what stood stood out to you about Carly Fiorina? She just seemed like she. Had her shit together. Can I say that on this podcast? Mm-hmm. She, <laughs> she had, had her shit. She had all of her fucking shit together. <laughs> she that. had her shit together. Um, yeah, she just she. I felt like she got some of the tougher questions. I mean, you know, she actually got some real policy questions there in the beginning when things were a little more lighter with the other candidates. It felt like. Um, and yeah, she, the cybersecurity question she got was a really detailed one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she had she had you know nuanced answers. I thought. Um, and you know, maybe this is a little superficial, but she just seemed really calm, cool, and collected, and she seemed really confident in everything she said. And like, you know, we just talked about how Lindsey Graham seemed like he had the life sucked out of him. You know, I think her appearance is like a confident, like, I know what I'm talking about. I believe in these positions. I think that's definitely going to help her too. Could be a a big fish in a small pond issue there, but it was (laughs) nevertheless a good night for Carly Fiorina. All right. Daniel Marins and Paige Lavender. What are your Twitter handles, guys? I'm just Paige Lav. And Daniel? Daniel Marins, M-A-R-A-N-S. All right. Stick around. And we're back. Way back. A whole week back, in fact. Some of you may have noticed that Jason Lincolns and Arthur Delaney, who are usually on this podcast, are not on it this week. That's because they're lazy bums. They're on vacation, stranding me with all of the work myself. Producers do nothing. Only I do things. Isn't that right, producer Adriana? (laughs) So last week, we... um, we talked to Shaheen Nasirapur, and we cheated prepping for this week by uh, by having him talk a little bit about student debt. Shaheen is a miraculously good reporter on all things involving money. He's been covering student debt for uh, a couple a couple of years now, uh, doing a great job, and he had some pretty interesting stuff to say. So here is uh, me talking to Shaheen Nasirapur. Tell us about what happened in student debt this week, because that's you know that's that's your. Your zone. So on Monday, uh, Secretary Duncan, Education Secretary Arnie Duncan, gave a speech in Baltimore um, where the administra- it was like their attempt to pivot away from the discussion about there's too much student loan debt and we need to do something about it to instead too few people who are in college uh, are failing, too few are graduating, and that's like the real challenge that we need to focus on. So he- it was the administration's attempt to say, okay, student loan debt's bad, but Lack of college completion is much worse. <laughs> Don't those two things go together? They if, do. If people are if people are not graduating from college and they're also carrying a ton of student loan debt, that kind of is uh, 
the yin and yang of total disaster getting out of college. And that's what Duncan's worried about, that people are going to college, taking on all this debt, but they're not getting the credential to go along with it. That's that's been uh, a... I, I I was I I got a degree in theater, believe it or not. That, that's going to instantly kill my credibility of every one of our listeners. Uh, but it was a big issue for theater pro- departments back in my day because there was no accountability. It was a tough business to break into, and no one was keeping watch over our programs to make sure we actually graduated and got jobs. So it's, I I think nothing has changed. Yeah. Okay. Well, (laughs) great. But this is we we always talked about it as a collective group of theater students. Is this something that everyone, just about every field of matriculation, is dealing with now? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, if you have because we understood why we weren't getting jobs, we're trying to do a business that was ridiculous to be an actor on stage it's ridiculous what a ridiculous thing to want to be and i wanted to do that for a while so. if you're graduating with like a degree in some kind of engineering field um right. or in like a stem field so science math computer science anything related you're it'll be easier for you to, it should be easier for you to get a job in like a high-paying job but there's sure. still like high unemployment rates in those professions and to be honest no one is really holding colleges accountable for student outcomes. The accreditation agencies aren't. Uh, state governments that license for-profit colleges aren't. Uh, the education department isn't. Congress doesn't want any accountability because, frankly, there are, like, what, six, 7,000 colleges in the country? Sure. And every congressional district has one. And colleges are, like, big employers. They're generally, like, nonprofit or public institutions. And so... And, and they're they a cash cow for elites. And, and they seem about. a lot nicer. They're, they're, a, lot, they're a lot more popular with the public than, you know, if, if you're relying on someone for campaign contributions or, or just because it's a, a big employer in your district, right. it's, it's a lot nicer to say, well, the University of XY than uh, the bank of XYZ or, right, yeah. uh, you know, the, the payday loan operator of, of XYZ, you know. <laughs> totally. Right. They, and they in the schools, like, they use that to their advantage. Like, they are, they wrap themselves in this cloak of, we're educators, we care about students, we want to help people succeed. But when people fail, there's no accountability, really, at, for colleges So, so my, here's my question. Is, is, I, I, I see Duncan's speech there. You know, sure, you want people to graduate. If they're going to take on this debt, it would be much better if they graduated. But isn't he focusing on the wrong issue here? I mean, I mean, if people – if college is just cheaper – if it's just less expe- expensive to go to college, then if people don't end up graduating, it's not that big a deal. They, they, they maybe spent some money, they took a risk, and it didn't work out. But if college in general is just more affordable, if it's something that more people can have access to, then then, then you don't have to worry so much about this stuff. Is, isn't he kind of putting the cart before the horse? I mean, that's one way to look at it, and you're absolutely right. If, colleges was, if college was cheaper and people didn't have to take out tens of thousands of dollars of debt to attend – it wouldn't be as bad if they dropped out. I mean, college isn't for everyone. Like, let's be honest. No, that's true. That's like, true. everyone that's should have the opportunity yeah. to go. But that, I mean, I sincerely believe that. If anyone in the country, if they want to go to college, they should have the opportunity to go. But quite frankly, for a lot of us, it's not worth it. It's not worth the time. Maybe, like, we don't really want to be in class. Maybe we'd rather learn a trade. So if it was cheaper, there wouldn't be, like, these horrible consequences of going for a few semesters and deciding, this isn't for me, I'm going to drop out. But because colleges, college costs have, like, skyrocketed, student debt's so much larger now, the interest rates are high, it's like, it's a a trap. Yeah, it's like being upside down on a loan. It's horrendous. Yeah. So by what mechanism does he hope to increase accountability? Let's, like, leave aside the issue of student loan debt and accept the argument that fostering greater accountability is a good by what means does he does he think he can do this that's a good question because when you ask the education department 
they will point to their first reaction is to point to other institutions. So we need the accreditation agencies to step up. Cause Wait, they, what other institutions are being monitored like this? Where because <laughs> because we talk about banks all the time, and it <laughs> seems to me in a minute. <laughs> right. It seems to me like wow, there's there's standards. So if you like, if you're looking at banks and you want to point to a government entity that could be responsible for you know functioning of markets or whether a certain bank is engaged in risky or dodgy activities, you can go to the banking regulator and demand accountability, saying, sure. "What are you guys doing? Are you guys on top of this? Where have you been the last X amount of months?" When it comes to colleges, the education department will say, "Well, you know, we have the accreditation agencies who are kind of like gate they are gatekeepers and they're in charge of quality assurance. Congress delegated much of the role to them." And the education department, as much as they want to do more, um, or maybe they can do more and they're just not using the authorities that they have aggressively, like they will say, well, the accreditation agencies like aren't stepping up to the plate. Then they'll say, also, the states aren't contributing as much to higher education. And so they are allowing tuitions to rise for students. Um, and so we need states to step up. We also need state agencies that license and oversee for-profit colleges to step up. Then so, they'll so say Congress needs to step up. The, the Ed's po- Department of Ed's policy here is basically the buck stops literally anywhere but here. For the most part, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they would like to do th- – the thing is, like, there's a lot of talk. Like, they want to do more. They say we need to do more. We need to hold schools accountable. The thing is, they have a lot of authority already. And they don't fucking use it. They cajole mm-hmm. rather than actually step up themselves. They could go after for-profit colleges by – they have this authority um, regarding like misrepresentation authority where if a college misrepresents certain things to students and it's particularly egregious, they can hold the schools accountable. The department doesn't – they don't exercise that muscle. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriana Yucero with technical assistance from Brad Shannon. Production guru Christine Canetta gave her thumbs up on this podcast – I'm HuffPost senior political economy reporter Zach Carter, and there were too many Huffington Post reporters on tonight for me to even name right now, but hopefully you enjoyed them. This podcast is available on iTunes, so subscribe and check out the whole HuffPost family of podcasts on iTunes while you're at it. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about on So That Happened, send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We'll see you next week, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.